You are now listening to the January 6th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's broadcast includes Christianese 101, Grace Upon Grace, and The Sexual Spiral. We will begin with a praise song and follow with our program, Christianese 101. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved.
Hello, everyone. My name is Don Chang, and I will be your host for our new program entitled Christianese 101. The term Christianese refers to words that we Christians use amongst ourselves, yet are not used in everyday conversation with the secular world. I guess you can say it is a Christian's language, and when you become a Christian, there are words and phrases that you will hear. Thus, it is like learning a new language, the language of Christianese. When you first came to church, were there a lot of unfamiliar words? Some of these words are not commonly used in the world, and there are many instances where we wonder what does that word mean? Sometimes it is not easy to ask someone for the meaning. These situations occur from time to time, even to people who became Christians when they are children. They grew up in the church, listening to these words, so as time passes, it gets more difficult to ask for the meaning, and they've missed their chance to ask. Most of the time, we just assume the meaning of the word within the clues given in the context. Of course, It is a relief when we truly understand the meaning, but oftentimes our assumptions could be misleading. That is why Christianese 101 will focus on a word or a term each week that is commonly used in churches and will explain the meaning. Hopefully, we will get a better understanding of these words and be able to explain it with confidence to others, like new believers or our own children. Today, we will discuss the word Amen. Some people might say, Who doesn't know what the word Amen if they go to church? Actually, there are quite a few people, especially the new believers, who have never heard or understood the true meaning behind the word Amen. Therefore, even though it is a word you may be familiar with, please be patient for those who may not be, and for those who are. Maybe you'll learn something new as well. Amen is a word that we say to end every prayer. But what does amen actually mean? Amen is a Hebrew word. Amen means to confirm, to support, to depend, to affirm, to trust, and to be certain. To follow that, amen can translate to words like certainty, affirm, faithful, And truth. Saying amen at the end of a sentence means let it be so or so be it. Therefore, when we say amen to end the prayer or a praise, it is like saying the prayer of the lyrics of this praise are the truth. I believe that to be true. I agree with that. However, there were many instances where Jesus said amen at the beginning of a sentence. When he said, I tell you the truth, He is emphasizing that his words are the truth. He began his stories with Amen. This can be seen in the four Gospels. Let's take a moment here and explain about the four Gospels. Some people might wonder what the four Gospels are. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are found at the beginning of the New Testament. Today, we learned about Amen. Amen means Certainty, truth, and faith. It is agreeing to what has been said in the prayer or a praise when it is used in the end of a sentence. As we discussed earlier, it is like saying, I hope it truly becomes like that. 
during a sermon, or when we read the Word of God. Amen is confessing that these words are real and are speaking the truth, and we believe them. I will live as if these words are my own. It is my desire that you would also reply to God's every word with Amen. See you next week.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Today we begin a new teaching series on pornography. It's called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. This teaching series was recorded last year from my home church in Phoenix, and it's the preview of my first book coming out, uh, prayerfully this summer, from Ambassador International, so that's exciting. Uh, What I'm going to teach you through this series are the 12 triggers to porn addiction. They're not steps, but they're triggers. And yes, there's a a huge difference between the two. Uh, What's the difference, you ask? (laughs) Well... I'll, uh, let me just keep you in suspense and, and we'll, we'll learn as we go. How's that sound? Before we jump into the first trigger though, I think it's important that we learn what sex really is. I mean, I, I, people laugh when I say that, but when we start thinking about sexuality and, and where does morality come from when we talk about this, this tender topic, right? Who has the moral authority to determine 
right from wrong. As a disclaimer, I start this teaching with two short stories of how I was personally introduced to sex. Now, there's not anything graphic in nature, but if you do have children below the age of 12 listening, uh, you may want to put your headphones on uh, for your ears only. And then lastly, there's a part in this teaching to where I make a comment that sex is, is supposed to only be between husband and wife. And I say something like, that we shouldn't be having sex with our business partners, right? Well, the class starts to laugh. It's a little hard to hear, but the reason that they're laughing is because one of the men in the group, he said that his wife is his business partner. <laughs> she's, she's like his office manager or something like that. So I, I wanted to make sure that you understood the context of, of what was going on there and, and why people uh, were laughing. So here's the introduction. This is the, the sex spiral with biblical sexuality. So I was laying in my bunk bed with a female babysitter. And it turns out we were both naked. I was seven years old. She was in her early teens. We made a fort out of the bed by hanging sheets and blankets from the top bunk. And I don't remember exactly what all happened to me physically that day. But I do remember her pointing and laughing at me and, and saying something to me. I had no idea that her words would unconsciously control my life for the next two decades. Several years later, I was standing in my dad's spare bedroom holding a pornographic magazine. I remember the way the, the room looked. It was small, it was simple, it smelled old. I remember the, the wood paneling on the walls. I remember exactly where the bed was, the nightstand. And tragically, I also remember those photos to this very day. These two events were my introduction to sexuality. Was this the right way to introduce a little boy to sex? What exactly is the right way? Who has the moral authority to determine right from wrong? Is it determined by unelected Supreme Court justices? Does it stem from the popular vote of the world and culture? Or does sexual morality come from someone who actually created it, purposed it? So before we move into the the sex spiral material, I, I wanted to first discuss what, what sexuality actually is from God's perspective. And contrary to the sexual revolutionaries of our day, there is a right way and there is a wrong way of understanding sexuality. King Solomon writes in, in Song of Songs 2.7, he says, not to awaken love before its time. Unfortunately, in my story, love was awakened way too early. So for us to understand the right way, let's turn to the very beginning of human history. Let's turn to Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26 in our Bibles. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make man in our image. Key point number one is notice the word man. 
contrary to popular, popular belief, this is not a person named Adam. The word in the Hebrew actually means humankind. <coughs> means mankind and or humanity. Humankind, mankind, or humanity. It's spelled A-D-A-M, but it's pronounced Adam. Therefore, this verse could literally be read, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. So with that understanding, let's turn to Genesis 2.21 and let's replace the word man with humankind. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the humankind. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed it up with its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, from the humankind, he made into a woman and he brought her to the humankind. Now that text takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? And I've also understood the, this word rib to be a single, a single bone that was taken out of, out of the side, out of the side of Adam. But the Hebrew word for rib is selah. And the word comes from rib or side or chamber. It's this, it's this idea of a side chamber. So the rib, the side chamber is everything from your, your collarbone down to your waist. It's this right here. It's this whole area. This is your side chamber. So rather than God simply taking a single rib from Adam, is it possible that God actually took humankind and splits it almost in half? Boom. So in other words, God cracks humankind almost completely open and creates man and woman from humankind. So look what happens in Genesis 2.23. Then the humankind said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, this is where it really gets interesting. Look at your text. Have you guys ever wondered why the words woman and man are capitalized? The, the Hebrew word for woman is isha. The Hebrew word for man is ish. Key point number two. It's in this verse to where humankind is no longer one being, but rather God specifically creates man and woman. He creates two. So we can now see that God designed men and women to complement one another, uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And it's this, this idea of complementarity. So complementarity, complementarity. Key point number three. It means that men and women are equal but different, each having different roles and responsibilities. So what does God do with this idea of complementarity? Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So think of it. You've got the Creator, which is God, and you've got him. He created humankind. And out of humankind, he creates Ish and Isha. He splits it open. Boom. And now you've got two beings. Right? Everybody got the visual? So key point number four. Yes, sir. And it wasn't one person that he took something out of? Correct. It was not this idea of a man named Adam. 
It was this idea of humankind or mankind or humanity. And after he split it, then there was Adam? Correct. So whoever this was, whatever this being was, you know, basically Adam, he wasn't the male figure that we think of. He, was, he represented both man and woman, a perfect creation in God. Probably going down a rabbit hole, we don't need to, but why does the English version of the Bible not describe that better? I don't know. You don't need to know. It's, uh, yeah, it's the translations, but it's, when I learned this stuff, it just really, it was, and we'll get to why, why this is so important. It's, it, it's not like a clean operation to where Almighty God just took one little rib, I think, from, from this guy named Adam, that you've got this being of a man and woman together. God cracks the whole person completely, almost in half. To make a woman, to make Isha. Another question. Just for advice, I get in a conversation with a guy at work all the time about different King James or living, and he gets really technical with how if you read a certain translation, it could throw you off because they all vary with different words, and it changes the content or what the verse actually means. Mm-hmm. Okay all the time. So do you recommend reading a specific translation over another one to avoid that confusion? Did you guys hear his question? So what translation is best? How, how do you actually decipher with all the different translations of the Bible of what is actually being said in the text? Because what we have, yeah, because <laughs> what we have to understand is that the Hebrew language and the Greek language is com- obviously completely different than the English language. And that's why there's different variations. So here's what I do. When you guys read for the next six days those scriptures that I've got, I read it in ESV. ESV is almost what they would consider a word-for-word translation. And then I also read it in a New Living Translation, which is more of a paraphrase. So I've got more of a closely related technical, which is a little harder to read, translation, which is the ESV. And then I also read the NLT, the New Living Translation. You could also read like an NASB as a technical and a NIV for a a more friendly translation. You can also use as a paraphrase something like the message to really understand you know, that's not a word-for-word translation. It was never meant to be. But to try to understand what it, what it is. It's a hard question. You, you don't have an answer. And that's why understanding the text and spending time with the text, going, wait a second. Why do we use that English word here? And why didn't they use humanity instead of, why, why they put he, him, and Adam, and, and all that stuff in there? I don't know. But what, what, what I would say is that when you spend time with the Lord, to actually spend time with Him and, and go, okay, what does this really mean? What are you really saying here, and how does it apply to my life? And we're getting ready to figure out why this is so important. I'm not teaching Hebrew to you guys tonight because it's something cool. There's a very specific reason that this lesson is so important tonight. Genesis 2.24, so the creator of humankind creates Ish and Isha from humankind, and now he defines what sexuality is inside Genesis 2.24. Key point number four, holding fast 
is this idea of clinging together as one. To keep one another close in a very specific and inclusive commitment that includes sex. That's what clinging together means, becoming one flesh. Biblical sexuality, when we properly understand it, is this desire to be whole and to come back together as one. It's this idea of completeness by husband and wife coming back together. you got Ish and Isha coming back together as humankind. Therefore, sex is the defining activity. That's key point number four. The defining activity that defines the marriage relationship. Sex is the defining, it's the one thing that makes marriage special. No other relationship includes sex. You don't have sex with your business partner. You're not supposed to, right? So take notice here, guys. Take notice that neither the man nor the woman by themselves display the full image of God. Ish, the man over here, he depicts some characteristics of the nature of God. And then you've got Isha that, dis- that depicts other characteristics. They're, they're different characteristics. They're not the same, right? So God split Adam into Bam, taking out the characteristics of a masculine man over here and, and then, or leaving the characteristics of a masculine man over here and then taking out the feminine characteristics over here for a woman, Isha. Also notice that God did not make a, an exact replica. He didn't make another humankind. He created two and they're different and they're different for a reason because when they come back together as one, they glorify God in this way. You guys get it? That's why understanding humankind, does this not explain, think about, think about what God's teaching you right now. Does this not explain this, this desire for you guys to plan this wedding, for you to want to be with her? Yeah. Does this not explain the desire to want to sleep with your business partner? <laughs> Key point number five. Key point number five. Marriage is a lifelong covenant relationship established by God between one biological man and one biological woman consummated or completed by sexual intercourse. Think about this. God established the covenant of marriage. It is an institution before any city was ever built or any, any nation ever formed, there was marriage. Well, wait a second. How how do we have Supreme Court justices now redefining an institution that they didn't even come up with? How is that possible? How is it possible that we've got unelected judges that are redefining God's laws all for the, the temperature of the culture? They legalized biblical sin. But we're all in here not to focus in on them. We're focused because we voluntarily broke God's laws, right? We have voluntarily said, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to turn my back on you. I'm going to give God the bird, and I'm going to do things my way. Right? And we're all in here at one level or another dealing with those ramifications. And tonight, prayerfully, the Lord is speaking to you going, okay, that wasn't 
What you guys have done, yes, I've cast it as far as the east is from the west. I'm not going to hold that against you. But starting tonight, things can be different. In fact, things are different because I sent my son. And now you're living in this thing called grace. And I will teach you how to love your wife. And I'll do so even when she's unlovable. Because, oh, by the way, you've hit her with an emotional baseball bat so many times that she can't even see or breathe. Ending our teaching on biblical sexuality on a somber note there with the effects of pornography. Uh, We will begin part two of the biblical sexuality lesson from the Sex Spiral series. And we're going to discuss a few things. Number one, the mystery of marriage. Uh, And then number two, what exactly is sexual sin? For example, is looking at pornography, is is that actually a sin? Well, that's all coming up tomorrow on God, Sex, and You. I'm your host, Dustin Daniels. You can follow me on uh, Twitter, at Purity Pastor. You can rate the show on iTunes, and you can visit the website at DustinDanielsRadio.com and submit a question. I would love to hear from you and answer that through the podcast. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power is the very name of and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. to be holy 
For those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is In the Beginning, Part 1. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Let me invite you to open in the Bible to the very first chapter, Genesis chapter 1. We're starting reading through the Bible together. And so what I want to do with Genesis 1 through 5 and Matthew 1 through 5, and I want to bring a couple of these texts, particularly Genesis 1 and Matthew 4, to bear on our lives in this room right now. And I want to remind us why we're here and why we're on the earth, why you're here on the earth, this place and this time and I want to challenge you in some specific ways as this new year begins. So I want us to start by reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And so read this passage from the very first chapter in the Bible. And I want us to pray together and hear from God in these two key texts in particular. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Oh God, even just reading this text, when we think about what we just read, we are in fresh, renewed awe of you. You said a word and this entire world came into being. You are, you are great. You are glorious beyond our comprehension. You spoke and a man was created. In addition to mountains and water and oh, your glory is all over creation. Heavens declare your glory. The skies proclaim your handiwork. We confess, even as, as we're talking all the time right now about weather and how cold it's going to be and it's going to snow. We confess you're the one who determines all of that. You determine the exact degree of temperature that is now, the exact degree of temperature that it will fall to. You are sovereign, O oh God, over every single flake of snow. Oh, you are, you are our creator, our sustainer. The only way we have life right now is because of you. And so when we, we are opening your word right now, and it's sitting in front of us, we're in awe of the fact that when you speak, a world comes into being, and we're asking you to speak to us now. Oh God, this fills us with great anticipation before you. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. All across this room, individual seat, God, we pray God, we pray that your word would speak clearly. Help us, help us, we pray, to understand our place in creation, purpose of our lives, where we're sitting right now. Help us to hear from you about that. And we pray that as you speak in this room, you would transform lives, that you would change lives, some for all of eternity. Pray that more than anything you'd be glorified in the way we hear from you and the way by your grace we respond to you. So give us, even as we talk about your word now, fresh awe of who you are. Help us not treat your word and these things that we see casually in any way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the beginning of the Old Testament, see the purpose of our lives. Scripture, the word of God is clear from the start. We are not here haphazardly. We're here for a reason on the earth. So what's the reason why we're on the earth? Genesis 1.28, I think sums it up. God blessed them and God said to them, so blessing followed by command, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. 
And I have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So I think there's twofold purpose here, which really is one purpose, just kind of split up in a, in a two. One, we've been created to enjoy God's grace in a relationship with him. So feel the wonder behind being created in the image of God. So there's a lot of grand things in creation. Mountains, mountain ranges, lakes, oceans, birds, animals of all types. And yet one thing in all creation is made in the image of God. With the capacity to know God, to relate to God. And that's you and me. We have the capacity, the unique capacity to have relationship with God. And God's created us to enjoy him in that kind of relationship with him. First thing he does, he creates men, he bless them. God bless them, period. And then you read Genesis chapter 2, and you see this account of creation that just has man and woman enjoying God in unhindered, uninterrupted, undistracted communion with God. We were created to enjoy God's grace and relationship with him. And we've been created to extend God's glory to the ends of the earth. So God blessed them and said to them, to these image bearers, be fruitful and multiply. So fill the earth with my image. Subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Multiply, multiply. Everywhere, fill the earth with my image for my glory. So you put those two together, and this is breathtaking when you stop to think about it. God has created us to enjoy him as we glorify him. And these go together. I was freshly reminded of this when John Piper was preaching at this conference in Louisville, that our joy and God's glory are not at odds with one another. That you don't have to choose between your joy and God's glory. Because your greatest joy is found in God's greatest glory. God's greatest glory is found in your greatest joy. So these go together. You want to enjoy God? And you glorify God. You want to glorify God? You enjoy God. These go together. Do you want joy? I know you do. But the world wants to be happy. And the Bible's telling us from the very beginning, blessing, happiness is found in enjoying God and glorifying God together. This is where, it's where they come together. Piper used the illustration. He said, whenever I've said to my wife, it makes me happy to be with you, she has never accused me of selfishness. So I got back after being out of town, took my wife out on a date, said, I'm going to try it. I love being with you more than anyone else in the world. And she did not, Heather did not look back across the table at me and say, well, that is so selfish of you. No, she was honored by that. When you say to someone, I love, I'm happy, I'm satisfied, I'm peaceful, I'm full of joy when I'm near you, you're honoring that person, aren't you? So how do you glorify, how do you honor God? By enjoying God. By being happy in God. This is all over scripture. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. I want to show you just a few places in Psalms 
this morning even was just freshly reminded of these texts. So Matt mentioned, I mean, Psalms and this hymn book of praise that we have in our Bibles. So this book that is dedicated to the praise of God on every page, the book of Psalms, Notice how this book that's dedicated to the praise of God is filled with the joy of man. They go together. Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalmist says to God, Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Does that bring honor to God? Absolutely. That brings great joy to God, glory to God, when you say, my fullness of joy is in you. Your right hand has pleasures that last and just keep lasting over and over. Like, don't fade away. That brings great glory to God. Go over to Psalm 23. Some of you may recognize Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm. And listen to this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Meaning, I got everything I need. Everything I want. I don't want anything else because I've got the Lord as my shepherd. I have no other wants. My desires are met in him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Oh, all this. I've got everything I want. Lying down in green pastures beside still waters. And my soul's restored. I'm led in paths of righteousness. What does verse, end of verse 3 say? For his name's sake. God glorifies his name by providing for your deepest wants so that you say, I don't don't want anything else. Your joy, God's glory, colliding together. Keep going in Psalm. Psalm chapter 37, verse four. Psalm 37, verse four. I love this command in scripture. In the Psalms, this is the word of God telling us what to do, saying, need to do this. This is the command from God. What does God command us to do? God commands us, verse four, to delight ourselves in him. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, who's the author of scripture, ultimately? God. God's the one who's the author of scripture. And so God says to you, delight yourself in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart. That's a promise from God. Accompanied by a command from God to delight in him. Keep going. A couple in the the 60s here. Look at Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, listen to the psalmist. You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Do you see this? He's so overwhelmed by the love of God that his lips are praising God. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you, not just with tired, monotonous, mechanical lips, I also praise you with joyful lips when I remember you in my bed, meditating on you in the watch of the night, for you've been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Keep going to Psalm 67. One of my favorite psalms just links them together. God's, enjoy God's grace relationship with him. Extend God's glory to the ends of the earth. Verse one, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. See the picture, the face of God shining upon you. Enjoy God's grace in relationship with him. For what end? That your way may be known on earth. That your saving power among all nations extend God's glory to the ends of the earth. That go together. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing 
for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. It's a song. Nations be glad in God. And not just our joy, others' joy. You get to Psalm chapter 69. Psalm chapter 69, verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. It will please the Lord to magnify the Lord. When the humble seek it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Do you see the picture here? You'll be glad in giving glory to God. They go together. One more, next chapter, chapter 70. Look at verse 4. May all who seek you, God, rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Oh, get this. Get this, you'll get everything. God desires your joy this year. God, the God who created the world, desires your joy right where you're sitting this year. I'm not talking about happiness that comes and goes based on trends and waves and circumstances. I'm talking about a deep, abiding joy that supersedes circumstances and trends. I'm talking about a deep, abiding joy that death itself cannot stop. That kind of joy. Path to that kind of joy in your life is found in praise to God in your life. They go together. I could switch it around and, and put it this way. God desires his glory in 2014. You know how he's going to glorify himself? He's going to glorify himself by satisfying his people in him. Do you see this? We have been created, you have been created to enjoy God's grace in a relationship with him and going together to extend his glory to the ends of the earth. It's not an either or, that's a, that's a both and there. This is why we're reading the Bible. And Psalm 19 promises this word that we're reading through revives the soul, it enlightens the eyes and rejoices the heart. Why am I calling you to read the Bible through over the next two years? Because it will revive your soul, enlighten your eyes, and rejoice your heart. That's why. Not so you can check it off. Not so you can show yourself to be a, a good Christian. No, it's for your joy. For your joy. To believe this. Those who know God's word believe this. Those who wrote Psalm 119. Just looking at different verses as we're praying this morning. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I, you don't have to turn to these, I'm just going to go through them real quick. But in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I delight in your statutes. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. Verse 40, I long for your precepts because they give me life. Verse 47, my delight's in your commandments. I love them. Verse 54, your statutes are my songs. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Well, what would make you happier this year? What would make you happier? A $100,000 raise at your job or reading through the Bible over the course of the year? What would make you happier? Be honest. If, if we're honest, first thing, flesh, well, $100,000, I could do so much for God's glory with $100,000. We're so warped in our thinking. We're so warped to think that's more valuable. It's not more valuable. It's not. It's not. It's not more valuable. The word of God is more valuable than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 
Verse 97, I love your law. Verse 111, your testimony is the joy of my heart. Verse 162, yes, the longest chapter in the Bible. 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. That, that's my prayer for you on a daily basis this year, that you would open up the word. Every one of us, as we open it up, we would just find great spoil every morning. I just came upon treasure, treasure, treasure. And some of the most unlikely, there's places, there's treasure in Leviticus. Like, just keep pressing through. There's treasure there, spoil there. I want to call you to joy in God for the glory of God. Enjoy God's grace in relationship with him. That's why we even just reading the Bible for the love of God, and that's the name of the devotional that kind of goes along with this Bible reading plan, but even bigger than that, that's the point. That we would grow in love for God, delight in God, joy in God, and knowledge of God's delight in us and God's love for us. That's the whole point of the journey, that we love God more. We know God's love for us more. That we would enjoy His grace in a relationship with Him in a way that extends His glory to the ends of the earth. They go together. So, this is how God has designed creation, to experience deepest joy in, in our deepest joy in His greatest glory. Now, the problem is, we, we've turned from God as our source of joy. So, it's the purpose of our lives, not the problem in our lives. Evident back in, in Genesis chapter 3, we see man rejecting God's word. So the problem in our lives is we've rejected God's word. The first question that ever appears in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Did God actually say, don't eat from this tree? All of a sudden, the command of God is reduced to a question about God. One writer said, for the first time, the most deadly spiritual force was covertly smuggled into the world. The assumption that what God has said is subject to human judgment. So Eve, let's, let's, let's talk about what God said and, and see how we feel about it. Eve should have been suspicious. She should have been suspicious of a talking snake, but even deeper than that, she should have been suspicious when she heard the adversary say, God didn't really say that. God told you a lie. God didn't tell you the truth. God's not the one who determines good and evil. You're the one who determines that. God's not the arbiter of truth. You're the arbiter of truth. Which is what we see in Genesis 3 and what we see all across our culture today, rapidly shifting moral landscape in our culture built on a relativistic idea of truth and morality. Oh, what's right is what I determine is right. What's wrong is what I say is wrong. And it's not just our culture, it's it's our hearts. It's every single one of us. Every time we sin, we're saying to God, I know what's good for me and not good for me better than you do. I determine this, not you, God. And so we've rejected God's word and in the process we've rebelled against God's authority. We've asserted ourselves as a greater authority than God. In the process, distance of ourselves in independence from God. This is my life, your life. It's the story of all of our lives. We're going to do what we please, whatever we want. Every other thing. You read through, think about it. You read through Genesis 1 and 2, and you see everything in creation responding in obedience to the bidding of God. Light responds to God, and mountains do what they're told based on the authority of God. Ocean waves stop where they do 
because God says, you stop here. Birds, animals, they all respond in perfect obedience to the bidding of God until you get to man in Genesis 3 and you and I have the audacity to look at him, the creator God in the face and say, no, we know better than you do. We're in charge here, not you. In our sin, we insist that we know what's best for our lives. And the result is, a world where we run around from person to person, from possession to possession, from pleasure to pleasure, from pursuit to pursuit, thinking this is going to do it for me, this is going to satisfy me, this is going to make me happy. And the tragedy is, all the while, we're running from the one our souls long for most. Separated from God and our sin against God. Which is why we find ourselves, instead of a Genesis 2 type world, in a Genesis 4 type world, marked by sin, evil, suffering, pain, depression, hurt, heartache, because every one of us and every person on the planet has turned away from God. We read this week, I mean, one chapter after Genesis 3, we've got murder in Genesis 4. We'll read tomorrow about massive flood coming upon the earth. What a change from Genesis 2 to Genesis 6 in four short chapters. And don't miss the portrait of God that we have in these first six chapters then. I mean, right here we have the divine attributes that set up the divine dilemma for the rest of Scripture and the rest of history. On one hand, we see a creator God with holy love for his people. At the same time, we see a judge with holy wrath do his people. And so the question is set up from the start, how can God show holy love towards sinners who are due his holy wrath? And thankfully, in the middle of this dilemma, from the very beginning, we have a promise for our lives. What God says to the adversary in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That verse is what Christians throughout history have called the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. Martin Luther said that verse, verse 15, embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. Because here we have a promise One, God will send a redeemer to us. He points, God points to a time when a son will come, a man born of Eve from line of Eve, who will be bruised by the evil one. But in the end, who will crush the evil one? What Isaiah later said will come true. This son will be pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And what Peter later said will come true. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Now in the midst of the darkest scene in all the Bible, we have glimmer of grace and the promise of Christ. God will send a redeemer to us. A redeemer to pay the price for us. He will send his son to pay the redemption price, the price to bring you back to him, to redeem you. Pay the price for your sins so that we can be reconciled to him. So that you and me 
weak and be reconciled to him. Hear the good news of the Bible. Christian, non-Christian friends here today, when you read, I read Genesis chapter 3, we don't need to think this story is just about Adam and Eve. It's about us. Ladies and gentlemen, we are Adam. We are Eve. We have rejected God's word. We have rebelled against God's authority. And we, you and I, we need a redeemer. And God has provided one for us to be reconciled to him. He has been true to his promise in Genesis 3:15. He has sent his son to us. He has died on a cross for us. He's risen from the grave in victory over Satan, sin, and death so that all who trust in Jesus as redeemer will be reconciled to God forever. Be reconciled to God at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Only possible through this redeemer. I 
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Yeah.
his body Day. Up from the brave.